This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth. Pick the two or three things that you think can be most impactful for your team and your organization. Be maniacally focused on them, and that will permeate throughout the organization, drive the kind of change and belief that you want your team to have in you as a leader. From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing Podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by John Thompson, chairman of the board for Microsoft. John spent about three decades in sales at IBM before joining Symantec as CEO and eventually chairman. He'll talk about how he transformed a struggling company into the security powerhouse that we know today. John will also offer advice on what it takes for a sales executive to move into the C-suite. But most importantly, John was one of the first black salesmen to carry a bag for IBM in the South in the 1960s. He provides a firsthand perspective on racial injustice in the U.S. and shares his thoughts on how corporate America and each of us as individuals can respond to systematic racism and bias. We've got a lot to cover, so let's dive in. John, welcome to the podcast. Justin, thanks so much for having me. John, I wanted to start off, this is this is a crazy time, the, the time of COVID to record podcasts. I'm squirreled away right now in the corner of my master bedroom. It's all the space my wife has allotted me. You're in your car barn right now, and I have to ask, tell me about the 1949 Chrysler Town & Country Woody that is parked behind you. What's the story with that? Well, it's not actually parked behind me, but it is here in the barn. When Sandy and I built our first home in Hawaii, I was convinced that if you're going to live in Hawaii, you ought to have a Woody. And there's no better Woody than a convertible Woody. And sure enough, a friend of mine found this car in Atlanta in a facility that was where it was for sale. Ironically enough, it had been owned at one point in time by Bruce Springsteen. And so when I got it and looked at it, I liked the car, but I realized it wasn't as meticulous as I wanted it to be. So we had it completely restored and it's over there in the corner and it's a great car to drive. I had my grandkids here over the 4th of July weekend and we all went out for a big ride in that car. Wow. What a story and owned by the boss as well. So I'm sure there was lots of good aura that, that had steeped into it. Well, apparently when he and his wife went through a divorce, she ended up with the car. And that's how it ended up being bought by another person who realized that it didn't work in um, the small islands of Massachusetts. And therefore, he <laughs> ended up selling the car. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Sure. You grew up in the 1960s. You grew up in, in Florida. West Palm Beach. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to be a kid, uh, kid out there at that time. Well, in the 1950s and 60s, when I was actually a kid, uh, it was a very segregated community, as you can probably imagine. So I lived initially in West Palm Beach, and we lived in the African-American community in West Palm and with the school, if you will, in African-American schools in that community during that period of time. There wasn't that much uh, 
racial activists, if you will, in the 50s, but it started to really, really increase in the 60s. And candidly, like many of the protests that have gone on over the last few months or few weeks, I certainly was involved in my fair share of those back in that time. Not quite like um, my, my friend Jesse Jackson or others, but certainly when they were going on in my town or my community, I was actively involved because I wanted to send a message that it's time for us to open up our culture. The thing that I find so different, however, today is that back in the 1960s, when I would participate in those protests compared to today, back then, 99.9999% of the people in the protests were black, were people of color. Mm -hmm. That is not the case today. And it speaks greatly to how our society has changed and that the driver for the next generation of change is not just going to come from people of color or African-Americans, but it will come from our society who believes that we need to be more open. We need to be more inclusive. We need to be more embracing. And that's a very good thing, in my opinion. Certainly some tragic events that that are very fresh in all of our minds right now. The the murder of George Floyd and so many other crimes of hate. Can you talk a little bit about how those events have affected you personally, but also as a business person, what your thoughts have been with respect to the topic? Well, I've actually been isolated as an African-American by police. I can remember once upon a time when I was um, I just moved to Chicago. My wife and I had stopped at a local uh, pharmacy. I was driving a black Mercedes and wearing a big coat and a hat and all of that. I walked into the store. I double parked when I came out. They said, who are you? And I went, well, I live in the neighborhood. And they literally said, can we see your driver's license? I went, sure. So I showed them my driver's license. And before too long, I got arrested for double parking. Now, why was that the case? Everyone parks, or many people double park at a drugstore. And literally, I went from being double parked to arrested and put in jail, only detained for a few hours. But nonetheless, it had nothing to do with the fact that I double parked, in my opinion. It had more to do with the color of my skin and the mm. fact that they didn't appreciate me being at that drugstore in that part of town at that point in time. So all of us have had an experience or two. I've had more than one, I can assure you that. But each of those, for all of us, should be a learning experience, not for those of us like me alone, but for those of us who are on the other side. When you get a pushback, it says, gee, have I really done this the right way? The situation with Floyd in Minnesota is just disturbing. Because for a police officer, four police officers to be around while one of them literally chokes this guy to death for eight and a half to nine minutes makes absolutely no sense. And as I said to police chiefs as well as or police officers, I should say, as well as union leaders here in California, unless we do something about the culture of the police organization, I'm not sure how you ever change that. And the unfortunate thing in my mind is that the culture of the organization is driven by the union, not by the police chief or not by the mayor. And so how do you change the culture of a union? That is harder than changing the culture of an enormous company like IBM or Microsoft, quite frankly. Mm. So we've got a huge challenge ahead of us in fixing this problem in our country. So we are, as individuals, members of a society, a community, but as professionals, we are the leaders of businesses what is, what is our responsibility with respect to our professional role uh, as, as it relates to diversity inclusion and addressing some of these recent issues? Well, I think the only way 
this country is really going to change is not for what our president or our political leaders will do, but what our business leaders will do. When business leaders stand up and say, this is the direction that we as a company or we as an organization or we as a country should take, then more people are willing to align behind that because it is not politically aligned. It's aligned by what's right for our culture and our society. And so I think as many companies have stood up and said, look, okay, I'll admit I haven't done as much as I should have done. And therefore, I'm going to do a lot more. I'm not only going to hire more people of color, I'm going to work more to improve the participation of people of color in our economy around the world and around the country. And that, I think, is a very, very positive first step or next step. And there are many, many steps to come from there. I've noticed that there there were a wave of responses. There was there were a few companies that responded immediately to the events, made a statement and actually were held accountable. Hey, you've made this statement, but what are you going to do about it? And then there was a second wave of statements where companies, I think, were a little more introspective, a little bit more honest about maybe we haven't done as much as we should. We want to do better. I think that acknowledgement is important. And then from there, here are some of the things we're going to do. I see that idea of holding each other accountable to not just use words, but to actually think and take action is critical to moving past all of this. I completely agree. I completely agree. And having within the company a set of metrics that allows you to determine whether or not you truly are making real progress or not becomes critically important. I look at what Microsoft has said they're going to do over the next five years, which is double the participation of people of color at all levels of the organization. That is a massive, massive undertaking. And they need to make sure that they can build a pipeline for those candidates, not just internally, but externally as well. And if every company is trying to do that, if you thought the intensity for a job search was tough a week ago or a year ago, think about the next three to five years as more people of color get opportunities for jobs in the tech sector or more broadly, and quite frankly, have to compete with one another. That's an interesting phenomenon as well. What, are, what is your experience in terms of real meaningful activity that, that companies can stand behind that actually make change? Well, I think when a company says, I'm going to make change, it has to pick two or three agenda items and focus on those two or three. What happens when you decide I'm going to change the world and I'm going to do something this big is you get distracted along the way. So I would encourage every leader, pick the one or two, two or three things that you think can be most impactful for your team and your organization and be maniacally focused on them because that change and that maniacal focus will permeate throughout the organization and will in fact drive the kind of change and belief that you want your team to have in you as a leader. So this is uh, hopefully an, an area where we progressively can make progress. I know, though, for you, very personal and, and just your experience and your background. Going back to those early days as a kid in Florida, uh, this was part of your reality every day. What were some of the other facets or what were some of the other dimensions of your life like? Well, I can remember... Having grown up in West Palm, I really didn't spend much time outside of my community. And so my engagement with people who were not African-American was fairly limited, quite frankly, until the year I graduated from high school and went to work at a local ice market where we would bag ice every day and I would get to ride with the driver to take it to the local stores. Well, it was fascinating because all of the drivers of those trucks 
were not people of color. And in one instance, when I showed up at a store, 7-Eleven like store, and someone wanted to know, is is it okay for him to handle those bags of rice? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, gee, are you kidding me? My hands are as clean as his. But because of the color of my skin, there was this view that maybe I shouldn't. And I learned early on that you shouldn't be confrontational. Uh, at least my personality wouldn't allow me to be confrontational. My personality would always allow me to be inquisitive. And I would ask, well, well, why can't I touch that bag of ice? And they would have to then claim or proclaim why that's the case. And generally speaking, people would not say because you're black or because you're a person of color. And so I think there's something to be said for confronting the situation, but not in a controversial way, in a way that allows you to open the dialogue so that people will engage with one another on issues like this. That is a great insight, asking questions to diffuse a situation, getting people to ask themselves and, and challenge themselves. And you're right, that is a, a non-confrontational way to diffuse a, a highly charged situation. I think it also invites people to learn and understand. And in many cases, these things happen because of ignorance. People don't, people don't even realize what they're doing. Well, I can remember in my early days as a salesman, I had a very large account that would go nameless. And one of my responsibilities was to sell to the staff that bought technology for this company around the globe, mostly a U.S.-based company. And we had announced a series of mainframe products at IBM, and they bought four or five of them. And lo and behold, two years later, we announced new products, which were off-cycle. More importantly, the products that they had bought were off-cycle not the ones that we had just announced. And so this guy who ran the staff organization was just enormously angry. So I went in to meet with him to talk about the new products. And, and he said to me, we just don't want any more niggers in the wood pile. Mm. And suffice it to say, that was quite the moment for me. And I looked at him with a completely straight face and he says, neither do I. Now let's talk about which one of these you're going to buy. And his response was, I'm so sorry. I said, you don't have to apologize to me. You need to go and do a little soul searching yourself. Well, why did you say that? Well, guess what? Not only did they buy a shitload of computers, I got a huge promotion quite early. <laughs> and, and so I think there's a way in which you can manage your way through these things for sure, where the outcome is good for you and good for the person or the organization on the other side. You just have to be willing to be engaged, quite frankly. Wrapping up college, your first job out of college was IBM. IBM at the time, the, the business suit, the white shirt, the tie. Were you that, were you that kid that was walking around campus with the, with the suit and the tie on thinking, I'm going to IBM? There was nothing more remote in my mind than joining IBM. However, the guy who ran outplacement services for the institution was a fraternity brother of mine. And IBM came on campus looking for salespeople. And my last two years in college, I sold stereo equipment. So he literally found me and said, you've got to go to this interview. And I'm like, look, look at me. I got an 800 pound Afro, the biggest mustache and beard in the world. I don't wear uh, blue suits or white shirts. As a matter of fact, I only wear two sister suits, Polly and Esther, and they have to be multicolored. <laughs> And he says, I don't care, go anyway. And so sure enough, I went to the interview. 
And they said, we'd like for you to interview with a local sales manager. Well, I go to the local sales office and lo and behold, the sales manager is looking to buy a stereo system. Well, I spent most of my time trying to convince him that he should buy a Marantz from my store as opposed to a Macintosh from the other high-end store in town. And the end result was he recognized this guy can sell. So I did get a job off it, but not in Tallahassee, but in Tampa, Florida. And I got very, very lucky because the guy who was our branch manager had been the head of human resources for the U.S. business and had decided to step down from that to come back to run a local branch in Tampa. And I was the first African-American salesman in Tampa and ended up quickly, three and a half years after joining, getting my first staff job, in large part because of what Ed McGinnis did for me when I joined that team and a guy named Dick Lemon, who was, in fact, my early mentor in the process. There's a great lesson there. As as leaders, we're always looking to find the top talent. It's easy to fall into that trap of having a prescribed background, a certain set of experiences on the resume. What happened with you, though, is you were put through a literal sales case study. And the guy managing you said, this kid can sell. Um, maybe he's never had a formal sales job before, but he can sell. And he saw the raw potential in you, made a bet on you, and obviously paid off in spades. Yeah, the thing that's most amazing about all of this, though, quite frankly, Justin, is I never had any interest in staying with IBM. My belief back then in the philosophy in the community, quite frankly, for people of color, was the most successful careers back then were people in teacher, preachers, doctors, or lawyers. And so my view was I got to be one of those four and I couldn't be either of the first three. So I was going to be a lawyer. I was determined that after my first two years at IBM, I would leave and go back to law school and become an attorney. But lo and behold, I was fortunate that my father-in-law was an attorney, a very successful attorney. And so I had a conversation with him and said, so I'm thinking about going back to law school. Uh, here's what I want to do. And here's where I want my career to go. And so he says, OK, well, let's just talk about what you're doing now. So let's say two years from now, uh, where do you think you'll be? And I just finished the sales training program. So I was about to have my first year as a bona fide, qualified sales rep, if you will. And so I said, well, in the next two years, I think my income should double or triple. And he's like, really? I went, really? Because I've gone from you know, a line job to now I'll have a true leveraged sales job. And so it's not inconceivable that in the first year I'll go up 60 to 80 percent. And in year two, I'll go up even more than that. And he went, oh, OK. So he says, so three years out, which would be about the time that you graduate from college, where would you be then? So the optimist that I was, I said, well, maybe three times or four times. And he looked at me with a perfectly straight face and said, well, why would you ever leave IBM to go back to law school? And he then reminded me that I had a wife and two kids and that that would be a pretty burdensome journey for the next three years if I didn't think longer about it. And it was his encouragement that got me to stay at IBM. And it was the support of Dick Lemon, my partner, and Ed McGinnis, the branch manager, that really got my career started and going upstream. So you had a great run there, 28 years. I'm surprised you are you are an ambitious guy. You're always stretching yourself. How was it that you could stay at one company for 28 years? And what did you find you were getting out of it over that time period? Well, I had developed a philosophy about career advancement that 
IBM had a model within its sales organization that the person who was likely your boss was about two years, maybe three years ahead of you if the aggressive part of the organization was moving along. So I could always look at my boss and say, gee, can I envision myself doing his job or her job? Back then, it was mostly his job. And if the answer was yes, then that aspirational goal was, how do I get to that job? And if the process was only two years, my gosh, you could feel real progress in your career in the course of that two-year period. And so I worked my butt off for the first 20 years, 24 years, and ended up joining my first corporate board for a company in Indiana where I had been IBM's main representative for them. And as I sat in that boardroom, I realized here are many, many people around the table who have the title president and CEO of public companies, and yet they don't know that much more than I do. So it led me to believe that I too could be a CEO if I could sit in a boardroom and participate and engage with people who had that job. And that was the aha moment for me when I said, I too can do this, and therefore I am. So I started to look around and turned down many, many opportunities in the Valley because all of them were to be a number two or three or four guy in a much smaller company than IBM. And so I passed on them all. And a good friend of mine, John T. Thompson at Hydrogen Struggles, approached me and says, what would it take for you to say yes? And the answer was simple. It would have to be a software company. It would have to be a mid-sized company that's lost its way and needs someone to come fix it. And three, it would have to be the top job. I'm not going to leave a big job in a big company to go be the number two or three or four guy in this whole company. Well, lo and behold, six months later or less, he came back and it was a perfect match. $600 million company looking for a president and CEO who really was looking for a strategic shift. And the company was called Symantec. I took the job and we took it from $600 million to $6 billion over a 10-year period. I've heard a lot of people say, at some point, you got to take a leap of faith. You're never going to check all the boxes. You got to tell yourself, though, I can do this. The things that I don't necessarily know or have mastered right now, I can figure those out. And when you're right, willing to do that, that's that's when great things were unlocked in the career. Well, I had the wonderful fortune of having many, many mentors throughout my IBM career. Um, people who were literally at the very top of the company, the CEO, the chairman of the board. I was actually uh, a part of the team that managed the transition of leadership from John Opel to John Akers. Uh, years later, John Akers tapped me to go to MIT to Sloan School. So a lot of things happened at the very top of the organization as they started to believe in me and recognize that I, too, could run significant portions of the company, independent of what my background might have been. It didn't have anything to do with the color of my skin. It had more to do with the experience I had gathered over the course of the time I'd been there. And IBM is known for its training programs, its leadership programs. Oh my gosh, incredible programs. And I give IBM a lot of credit for what I, who I am today because of both their early development programs but as importantly, were their management training and development programs that they put in place. I mean, the, the early training program to be a salesman in IBM was 18 months long. And I can remember saying to uh, Ed McGinnis, Ed, I can't just sit in the office and read books all day long. I've got to do something. And so he says, well, I, I don't know. This is what the training program is out of mind. I said, well, we just announced a new key punch. 
can I just take responsibility for selling that product for this office? And he says, sure. Well, we sold more key punches that year than any branch before. It was and either so, that or reading the manuals. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I learned the hard way that if you ask, you will get it. And sure enough, I asked. And they gave me a shot. Once I proved that I could sell, then it was like, oh, my gosh, where are we going to put it next? And I ended up being a sales rep on the general telephone account. All right. So that story brings it home, moving from an era where key punches were the state-of-the-art technology there you go. <laughs> to, to where we are today. Can you talk a little bit about just the evolution of technology, maybe with respect to sales, how the game has changed since you got into it back in 71 um, to where, where things are today? Well, back then, the talent pool was far more limited. The number of people who were actually using computers in their business was growing but it was more about businesses using computers and individuals using computers. Candidly, as time grew on and the mid-market started to emerge, um, IBM had its share of mid-market computers, along comes Sun, along comes the PC, and all of a sudden there's this enormous shift that goes on in the tech industry. And all of a sudden it becomes more about the apps that you're using than the machine that you're using. And that is even more true today than it was 15 or 20 years ago, much less 50 years ago, 49 years ago when I joined the industry. I, I love to track the evolution. And what's amazing about this industry is that it's all compressed. So over the course of the career, you can see so many different eras that are evolving and then and then falling by the wayside. So you so you you took a risk to some degree in your career. You were at IBM, you had one of the top jobs billions of dollars under your purview, and you decide to go to a $600 million company that, according to you, has lost its way. What was your formula when you got there? What was the approach you took? Well, because I had gone through so many job changes in my career at IBM, I had a philosophy about the new role, which was go in, engage with the team, listen, but keep your mouth shut for the first 90 to 100 days. Because the whole idea is to learn as much as you can before you make a declarative statement about direction or strategy or what have you. So I traveled the world for the first 90 days to understand who Semantic was and what it was doing and why it was doing what it was doing. And 100 days in, we had a team meeting and I said, okay, we're going to make a strategic shift. We're going to become a security company. And all of the things that aren't related to security or connecting people or organizations together, we're going to get out of. And they were like, really? I went, really? For example, we had the number one Java development tool called ACT. Well, we didn't even use it. We didn't use it for any of the products that we knew. Um, and so we sold that off. We had a wonderful business that was PC Anywhere, that was a connectivity business, if you will. And it generated an enormous amount of revenue and free cash flow. So we kept that business and we sold off a number of other things and then started to invest in security technologies or buying little security companies. And within two years or so, we had moved from about 600 million in revenue to maybe 700, 725 million in revenue. And then lo and behold, 9-11 or 2001, 9-18 occurred. So seven days after the 9-11 attack, the first self-propagating virus hit the marketplace called NIMDA. 
And Symantec was very well positioned with new product in market when McAfee was not. And that was when the company just absolutely exploded. Um, and we started to grow at 35 to 50% per quarter for the next two or three years, which was just an amazing run for the company, quite frankly. This idea of focus is so important. It takes courage to lop off the, the limbs that don't contribute, but ultimately it sounds like that's not just what saved the company, but what set it up for long-term success. Well, those teams did contribute. I don't want to suggest that. They did contribute, but I didn't view that having a diverse portfolio for a company of 600 million made any sense. You had to have focus and the focus was about the security category as opposed to the personal productivity category and the uh, Java tools category. All these categories that we had where it wasn't clear to me that we could ever formulate a leadership position across multiple categories. So we had to pick one where we thought we had a shot and go after it full time. And Norton was one of the top two products in the marketplace that day. So the question was, how can we extend the Norton brand? What I discovered after that was we had a license with Peter Norton that for everything that we sold that had his name on it, he got 1%. Well, I went to him and I said, Peter, that just doesn't make any sense. And so we're going to have to shift this. And he went, no, I'm sorry, we're not. I went, okay, fine. If that's the way you want to do it, then we will rebrand everything that's enterprise related. So we rebranded everything that we sold to enterprise Symantec. And that's when Symantec started to get the brand, if you will, of being a security player beyond just being the owner of Norton, if you will. Got and it. we stopped paying, we stopped paying Peter a shitload of money. <laughs> <laughs> I heard something there. It was, it was an ingredient in your formula. You talked about listening and learning. Uh, on another occasion, there's a quote that you've used, which I love. Leadership is about lifelong learning. If you don't listen, how will you learn? Now, that sounds a lot like another guy that I think we've all been exposed to, Satya, who obviously has embraced the growth mindset, this idea that you're always learning, you're always listening. You, as the, the chairman of Microsoft, have had a lot of opportunity to work with Satya. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with him and some of the things that, that you guys have exchanged in terms of learnings about leadership. Well, he and I have developed, I think, a wonderful relationship when... We first started the search process while I knew him because I had been on the board for a couple of years at that point. Uh, candidly, I did not know him that well. And a lot of my time in the early part of the search was spent looking outside, not just looking inside. And so when Bill and I, about, well, I'd say 90 days into the process, when Bill and I got together, the two elements that we were driving hard on was cultural change and technology innovation. And as we looked at a number of the outsiders that we were interested in, many of them, we thought, I thought, could bring the cultural change, but we weren't sure if they could bring the technology innovation notion to the table. Because one of them who was particularly significant in my view was not a technologist. He had a background that was more like mine, if you will, than Satya's. And so we just decided we really needed a technologist in the job and someone who could, in fact, drive cultural change. The question was, could an insider do cultural change as opposed to bringing someone from the outside? And I think Satya has proven to the world that he can, in fact, an insider can, in fact, drive cultural change. What has evolved over the six years or so now is that 
he and I have a wonderful relationship. We talk, oh, I'd say two times a month, maybe once a month. Generally on Saturday mornings, we get on the phone and we randomly chat about a range of things. It's not uncommon for him to text me or me to text him on some real-time issue that's going on. And I think we've developed a very, very good relationship. But I'm also sensitive to the fact that he's a CEO of one of the largest, most powerful companies in the world. And what he doesn't need is me tapping on his shoulder every day asking questions. But what he really wants to do is make sure that I'm on board with what he's thinking and the rest of the board is equally on board as well. He's a wonderful leader and I am so happy, so happy that we chose him. Well, it's an interesting juxtaposition of companies. IBM is obviously one of the originators of the modern technology movement, but to a large extent has uh, has garnered a reputation at least early on as uh, you know, something that's very sterile. I mean, you think of how the computer modeled after that. What Satya has done so beautifully is brought the human element of what Microsoft does, what we all aspire to do, and how computers are in the service of the human race. And he's done it in a, in a way that's, that's artful, it's poetic, um, very much on mission, obviously, though, with what Microsoft is trying to accomplish. I just have tremendous respect for what, what Satya, what Microsoft, what all of you that have been involved in the leadership of that company have achieved. Well, I think the credit certainly goes to Satya and the senior leadership team for what they have done, not just strategically to change Microsoft's direction and focus, but how they have come together as one team. Uh, and I give Steve credit for this pre-Satya. He recognized about a year before he made the transition out that he needed to create one company, not the multiple companies that lived inside of Microsoft, if you will. And he himself came up with the theme of one Microsoft. And that got embraced by Satya, got embraced by the team. And what has evolved now through the senior leadership team is a much, much more integrated, tightly connected group of people who work as one team in one company called One Microsoft. Well, John, it has certainly been a pleasure to chat today. Such a rich life and so many experiences. Maybe one more question. As you think about your life and the legacy that you leave behind, how would you like to be remembered? Well, as a guy who just liked to work hard and have fun, I, um, yeah, I've been asked many times, you know, would you like to write a book? Would you like to do this? Would you like to do the other? And my answer is, I don't have, my ego is not that big that I want to write a book about my life. Um, and so I want people to review what I've done, make some judgment of themselves, and they will decide what my legacy is, not me. Uh, my legacy has been laid now because of what I have done or accomplished. And hopefully people's interpretation of that will be decent, if not good. <laughs> Well, John, again, thank you so much for your generosity and sharing all of your experiences with us. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Justin, great to be with you again. Take care. All right, my friend.